Welcome. Now, my name is D. Ludlow. Now, before we get into this episode, go to the description, click the link and get your M&A Mastery Toolkit. This is a free download, which gives you some of the tools and resources that you need to start your M&A journey. Don't forget, go to the description, click the link. It's a free download and enjoy the episode. Hi, and welcome to the Ludlow Street Podcast, where we interview aspiring entrepreneurs who thrive off innovation. We look at how different walks in life have similar journeys, similar obstacles, but all have different whys. Now, on to today's episode. Here's your host, D. Ludlow. Hi, all. Welcome back. This is episode 12. Uh, today's going to be a little bit different. Um, I've had a few messages recently uh, asking me to get uh, some guests on you that is based around health. So uh, today we have Perto. He is a chiropractor specialist based in Finland. So I hope you enjoy the episode and I hope you take a few things from it. So hi, Perto. Um, good to have you on the podcast. Um, I've been looking forward to this episode uh, as is very different to the others. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, awesome, Dee. Thanks for uh, inviting me. I'm very excited to to speak with you today. So, yes, um, my name is Perto. I'm from Finland. Um, I am a healthcare professional, more specifically a chiropractor. So you said uh, this podcast is probably going to be a bit different to, to your previous ones. Um, so I... I did my master's uh, in UK, in Wales, actually. So that's uh, where I lived for the past four years. And now since uh, last uh, autumn or more so October 2019, moved back to Finland and started working in private practice in a private clinic. And more recently, I also started working in a gym as a chiropractor. I'm also part of a healthcare company called Back to Roots. So uh, they're obviously running our own business, but also we are quite active all in social media, try to promote uh, more sort of educational content in the topics of pain, physical activity and exercise adherence, lifestyle. Um, and then more, most recently now we started doing these uh, live workouts on Instagram and Facebook. So daily and weekly posting different workouts to help individuals who are in this unfortunate situation in home, uh, self-isolated to, to motivate and inspire them to, to be more physically active and, uh, and exercise. So yes, I am a, from my professional chiropractor and I primarily work with individuals uh, experiencing musculoskeletal related pain, uh, most commonly neck pain and low back pain. And then, um, by all sort of, sorts of uh, MSK conditions, that's where I'm. Um, how I normally work and see see people uh, with. I read that neuromuscular disorders uh, are diagnosed through a range of tests. Uh, one being an electrical test known as a nerve conduction study. Uh, this has the ability to measure nerves to conduct to electricity. Uh, could you give us a little bit of clarity around that and why it's done? Yeah, it's uh, interesting uh, what, what you've read there. Interesting question. Uh, certainly nerve conduction tests could be used. Um, I've heard more in the context of more uh, serious uh, neurological conditions, such as things like multiple sclerosis, that you could use those uh, where you're seeing definitely a compromise within the nerve's ability to, to conduct. Uh, but also within some uh, more musculoskeletal conditions like for example, uh, disc herniations or, or a disc bulge where you have an associated uh, nerve root compromise uh, and, and you're developing neurological signs and symptoms. Um, so it would be something like a numbness, uh, tingling in the, in the feet, weakness, uh, loss of sensation, 
reflex uh, alterations as well. Uh, you could uh, perform such tests to look uh, whether the nerve is still being able to conduct um, to its, say, innovated muscle, for example. Yeah, and a common treatment is drug therapy. Uh, that's where antidepressants may be used. Uh, is there any other alternatives, as a lot of people may not want to go down that route? Yes, so so certainly uh, more uh, over the span of a uh, within say quite many years, uh, the common treatment modality for a lot of these uh, musculoskeletal or MSK conditions has been just you know you said drug therapy, giving painkillers for for pain relief, and um, so in, in in essence you're just you're trying to treat the pain. But we've uh, now more recently within the uh, for example the most most recent clinical practice guidelines do not recommend drug treatment or therapy as a first line. So, um, for example, clinical practice guidelines from the American College of Physicians in 2017, um, they recommended that a um, this sort of non-pharmacological therapy and treatment should be our first line. And only then uh, we should use you know uh, drug therapy like painkillers for example to manage msk pains but certainly not the first line of treatment anymore because we know that that doesn't actually work as well as we'd hope <laughs> to, to manage pain so how about heat and ice therapy uh which one would you say is most beneficial and how do they work uh similarly as obviously with um those being quite traditional ways to to manage um, like again, back pain, neck pain, you know, soft tissue uh, injuries and things like that. Uh, but in fact, again, uh, they're not very useful and very good in, in, in managing a lot of these conditions. Perhaps maybe some, you know, uh, short-term relief. But more recently, for example, for musculoskeletal, um, things like soft tissue injuries, like bruises in the muscles, um, they actually don't recommend for the first couple of days you even use ice because uh, the the for example, with ice, you're kind of trying to blunt the uh, the body's inflammatory response, uh, which is actually what your body is trying to do. It's trying to heal it with the inflammatory response. So uh, actually, that's probably counterproductive if you try to use something like an anti-inflammatory modality like in ice in that situation. So indeed, exact, uh, the more recent sort of, uh, guidelines for managing uh, these sort of sub-tissue injuries uh, ice is actually not even recommended for the first couple of days, so you should let the inflammation uh, do what it's supposed to do and not try to block it with sort of anti-inflammatory uh, uh, modalities, but generally uh, not very effective, again, in the, also in the long run of looking managing pain. Yeah, there's many people that have uh, lower back pain and most power through the day, uh, day-to-day, and put off getting treated. Uh, what do you think the long-term effects are of not getting it looked at? Yeah, uh, interesting question. I think uh, back pain is extremely common. We're looking at um, like a lifetime prevalence about 84% currently. So 84% of the population will experience uh, back pain at some point in their lifetime. And that even can be an underestimate. So we're looking at is uh, now we're talking about something like a, a as common as the common cold because it's so prevalent. And for example, the point prevalence uh, from the, the recent data uh, is something like 7.3%. That may, that may not sound like a lot, but when you put it in the context of the worldwide population, that means that at this given time, when we're, when we're talking about 540 million people are experiencing low back pain, which is limiting activities. So not we're not talking about some sort of minor symptoms, but it's something that is affecting their activities of daily living. So it's a very, very common condition. And, um, and also, 
people don't normally experience just one episode. And in fact, if you've experienced one episode of low back pain, you are at a higher risk of experiencing a flare-up in the future. And we're talking about a recurrence rate up to 60 to 70% within the within one year time. So uh, that being said, um, we know that the, most of the cases, low back pain is, is, is an episodic condition that sort of comes and goes. And most people, though, they don't develop a, a disabling severe course but some people the minority are at a risk of developing a, a more severe and a disabling course and that's exactly those type of cases that are the most the biggest of healthcare burden um, and, and we know that uh, people for example we, what we are pushing to do is is in try to empower individuals to self-manage and and care for themselves but um in the long run, lots of the the um, interventions aimed to manage low back pain are not actually that useful <laughs> either. So it's a, it's a really it's a, it's a big big healthcare burden, a big big problem. So managing and dealing with with yourself uh, in some for some people can be very effective, but some people will need more uh, you know a multimodal approach with different healthcare professionals and different modalities to to treat the condition because we know now that it's not. As, as sort of simple as we used to think, this type of um, what was called biomedical model where you attribute pain to a specific structure or tissue. And if you just treat the tissue and structure, you should, you know, get relief. But in fact, we know that uh, it's, it's a lot more complex than that. And it's a, it's a health condition associated with multiple different sort of inputs into this. And these are biological inputs, but also uh, psychological inputs, social inputs, you know, uh, the, the environment where the individual is living, lifestyle factors, genetic factors, all these things sort of intertwine and, and, and emerge to create this, this complex experience. So what about for someone who has maybe a physical job or plays a lot of sport? How could they keep on top of it and monitor it? Uh, great question. Again, uh, the, the most of... Uh, I wouldn't say a low back injury because we know that pain is not really well correlated with tissue injury. But uh, a, say that you get like a back ache during a, a sporting. Uh, obviously, there's different. We have to differentiate whether that it's a, a traumatic event that you are actually experiencing a physical trauma. Uh, but most cases of low back pain are not like that. They're more what we call an insidious onset. So you don't really, you don't even know kind of a specific uh, context where the pain started. Maybe you could attribute that to a a physical activity or a task that you were doing, but we don't know a causal relationship. But so most of the cases, they are this sort of just gradually build up, and you, you develop the uh, low back pain uh, over the course of a, a, a time. And then, uh, as I said, most most cases are more benign, and they will go within uh, up to six weeks. They will resolve on their own, regardless if you do anything. So um, that's sort of what we see most of the time, but. Uh, that being said, there are a sort of minority of individuals who will develop more of a persistent case and a persistent um, sort of course of low back pain. But for those ones who, uh, you know, experience more of a, of a simple back ache, uh, I would just watch and wait. You know, uh, obviously you'd have to monitor. That's where some, visiting a healthcare professional can be extremely important because you could, we have to, as a healthcare providers, we need to triage uh, individuals who are coming to care. So, uh, we can generally, uh, you know, put low back pain into sort of three major brackets. There are a specific, um, low back pain and these we, we, generally talk about a more serious underlying health condition, um, something like a, you know, a, 
a tumor or a fracture or an infection, but these are extremely rare. T- we're talking to something like one to two percent of all of these uh, uh, low back pain episodes. Uh, then we got sort of nerve root compromise and, and, and nerve root pain, your traditional, traditional sciatica or a radical pain, uh, and these account to say two to five percent. And the most uh, what we see is what we call a non-specific low back pain, and this is given for the reason that we cannot attribute the pain to a singular cause. Um, it doesn't mean that we have no idea what's going on. It's the non-specific. It, it, me- it just means that there's not a particular sort of anatomical structure that we can treat, attribute the pain to. So most cases are like this, and in fact, uh, they 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 don't resolve for it, or there's a very poor correlation to a tissue-based injury. So you don't necessarily need any form of particular treatment. But if you are experiencing back pain, it is a good way. Uh, for example, if you are worried and you don't know what's going on, to seek a healthcare uh, provider to triage so we can you know guide you into an appropriate care but most of the time we you shouldn't worry about too much it's, it's it will go away on its own uh, because these are benign however uh understanding the natural course of low back pain is quite important that's that you may get a flare-up in the in the future and the most important thing that you can do is self-manage the condition yourself but not to you know panic or freak out if if, if you do uh, experience a recurrence because these are unfortunately quite uh, common as well so chronic back pain uh this is usually age related um it could also come from a previous injury out of the common causes which do you think is the most painful and how can you manage it very good question. Again, we used to think, like you said, there is a thought about maybe, uh, you know, at an older age, you're more prevalent to uh, experience back pain. And we often, uh, as I mentioned about this, this quote unquote biomedical model where we attribute pain to a specific structural cause. However, we've found out that actually these things that commonly is blamed for pain, like degenerative, uh, you know, discs or disc bulges, those things that sound very scary. They're actually very common in individuals who are asymptomatic, so they don't experience any pain at all. And we've also noticed that these structural changes get older. Oh, sorry, they get more prevalent as we get older. So they're more so like uh, wrinkles inside you, uh, and because they're so prevalent in asymptomatic individuals, so we didn't, we should not, you know, pathologize them as as a uh, you know cause for 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 pain and disease because we don't find the direct correlation. So in fact. Back pain is actually most common in uh, working populations, say ages between 30 and 50 years of age. But we also saw very, very, uh, it being very prevalent in adolescents as well. People uh, at the age of 18, we, we see up to 40% of 18 years old experiencing low back pain. So it's a very, it's a high number in, in there. But why does this happen? It's, it's, we still really don't have it figured out yet. Mo, with the, with the advances in pain science, we've understand so more about what, what pain is not. Because, uh, like I said there, we, we understood that it's more complex than this, just that you can attribute that to an anatomical cause. Uh, but then with, with the use of, for example, imaging, we are very good at, um, you know, ruling out more of these serious conditions, but we can't tell you where the pain is exactly coming from or whether you are at a higher risk of experiencing back pain in the future or what, what, what the prognosis is. And prognosis means like sort of, uh, whether it's going to get better in the future or how well it's going to get better or if you are at risk of experiencing back pain in the future. So we can't really tell these based on imaging. Um, so if the structure doesn't tell us too much, then we've understood that more of these psychological factors, social factors, lifestyle factors. Uh, for example, if you experience back pain 
and you catastrophize over it, you think it's something very serious and you have a very negative, uh, you know, thought of that pain, you think that it's going to last a really long, um, perhaps you think it's based on a serious tissue injury. If you're very stressed about that, if, if because of that fear, you start limiting your daily activities, you don't do exercise or, or, or do those sort of activities that you like to do. And also, if your social environment is something that uh, your workplace is affected and people around you are saying to you things like, look, don't stress your back, let me help you. Uh, things like that uh, are, are are predictors of more of a uh, of a disabling and persistent low back pain, and we commonly use these terms as psychological psychosocial factors. And the key ones are something like a self-efficacy, so your ability to to you know think if you're going to be successful in a given task, how well can you live with pain? Uh, also, the the fear avoidance. If you're fearful of that pain and you limit your activities uh, based on that, catastrophizing. But also lifestyle factors like physical inactivity, uh, things like that. That is is where we actually are seeing that we should start putting our treatment efforts into these more so modifiable risk factors. Also smoking, you know, obesity, uh, things like that, uh, which would put you in a higher risk of a persistent low back pain. So, do you believe the lack of physical activity could be the cause of major health issues? Oh yeah, one hundred percent. Physical inactivity. If we look at the uh, World Health Organization, um, it, uh, they're stating that physical inactivity is like the fourth greatest uh, health risk currently, just behind you know uh, obesity and and uh, tobacco smoking. And it's quite shocking that, for example, if you look at data from the United States, only about twenty percent of the individuals of, of people of the general the population in U.S. only about twenty percent meet the minimum uh, requirements for physical activity, and those are uh, currently one hundred and fifty minutes to three hundred minutes of moderate intensity aerobic activity, or seventy five to one hundred and fifty minutes of higher intensity aerobic activity or vigorous intensity, and twice a week resistance training. Uh, involving major muscle groups of moderate or greater intensity. So those are the minimum requirements and like 80% of the population in the US are not meeting those guideline recommendations. And that, like, as I said, that, that puts you in a, you know, great risk of all these chronic health conditions. Uh, and, in, but then if you meet these minimum guidelines or, or exceed them and you combine the, uh, aerobic component with the anaerobic, uh, or the, the strength training, you can, uh, reduce, reduce your risk of something like an all cause mortality by 23%. And you are a much lower risk of, of uh, developing say, cardiovascular disease like, a, like stroke or heart attack, um, and high blood pressure, etc. So yes, absolutely. It's a major public health issue these days, physical inactivity. Do you believe in any natural remedies? Um, a lot of people are moving towards more plant-based supplements and plant-based diets. Uh, what's your thoughts on that? I'm, I, I don't know, to be honest. Uh, I, I am not aware of a lot of the evidence, for example. Uh, also, we have to uh, look at what context we are talking about overall health. Um, I don't think that we have a, you know, a one specific diet that is better than the other. Obviously, you would have, you want to follow certain uh, recommendations for, for, for a uh, diet that you follow. For example, that you are, you know, you're eating a calorie balanced diet. Uh, you're getting enough fiber. You're getting enough protein. Uh, and, and lean protein, you are not uh, exceeding on, say, you know, not eating too much saturated fats, for example. Um, those are sort of more the general 
recommendations that you should follow, but where you're getting most amount of your, your, your nutri- nutrients and your calories, I don't think it plays a huge um, you know, difference when it comes to our overall health. So more importantly is, is that we are getting sufficient, but not enough calories, feeling the, the, our caloric needs, and then uh, meeting those, as, as I was speaking about, the, the you know, um, fiber and, and protein needs, as well as um, uh, nuts going overboard on things like saturated fat, for example. So what's the most severe case that you've experienced to date? Um, you're talking about uh, the musculoskeletal, like MSK conditions? Yes. Um, difficult to say because, as I, as, as I was mentioning there, we cannot really um, attribute pain or, or the, the amount of pain that someone feels. We can't really... Um, we often in a clinical setting, we ask someone like, how much do you feel your pain? Is that's from zero to 10. And, and those are some of the, the traditional numbers that we give zero being no pain, 10 being, uh, you know, the worst pain in, in imaginable. But, uh, what the sort of the biomedical model is, I'm going back to that. What that sort of told us is that say, if someone would say that they are experiencing eight out of 10 pain compared to someone saying four out of 10 pain, that would mean that the, the person who has get, having eight out of 10 pain would have more tissue damage. But we know that the pain often is, is, is out of proportion to the amount of, of tissue damage. Or even if you, you, we know that you don't even have to have any sort of tissue damage to be experiencing uh, pain. So those are, it's difficult. I may have someone coming in to see me and they say, I'm having 10 out of 10 acute pain. Um, or then someone who is saying that, you know, I've had pain for, um, or 10 years. So the context is always different. Uh, someone who's having a more acute episode, but they may have a very benign, you know, episode. They're, they're experiencing a lot, lot of pain at the moment, but that may be their first episode. They don't have a, you know, negative perception or beliefs about their pain. And they're quite optimistic that this is going to help and get better. And I'm getting them active quite quickly, uh, and moving. They're going to respond really well, even though they have a really high perception of pain or, or, or experience of pain at that given time, versus someone who's had pain for 10 years and they, they've, you know, had loads of failed treatments. They've, you know, having very, a lot of different explanations why, you know, they're having pain. Nothing has really been helping or working. And they are, you know, the, the pain has become part of their identity even. Or, and, and, you know, they go like, I'm the person with a bad back and, you know, I can't do these activities because I, you know, I have the back pain, etc. That's going to be a completely different context uh, to, to manage. And it will take a long time to, for, first of all, try to conceptualize what pain actually is and try to help them make sense about their pain and then getting them reactive to do this, uh, you know, some physical activities, if they've perhaps been avoiding them, if they've been out of work, etc. So again, the time frame will be completely different compared to say that the, the person who may have experienced more pain initially, but they had an acute episode and, and their sort of uh, cognitive status is completely different uh, when it comes to pain perception. Um, do you think stretching is important? Um, looking at the big picture, no, um, we don't really have, a, uh, you know, good evidence to support stretching or, or that's, that it would be an important intervention or, or a modality to, um, either manage or, or prevent back pain. Um, especially like a static stretching. We don't, we know that for, in terms of tissues, it, did, it doesn't really structurally do a whole lot of things. I would put stretching and lots of these different other, um, you, you know, passive what we call passive modalities of 
or, or stretching would be in also in the context of active that you are doing it, but you're using some form of either a, either a tool like a foam roller or or someone is doing to you do that to you. So massage, dry needling, things like that. I would consider them more to be something like a you know a feel good tools that you can use. And, and, and those may help you to feel better and maybe give, give you some transient pain relief. But also, if you don't do them, you're, you're not, you know, that you're not going to have a detrimental effect to you. Uh, you're, 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 the pain is not because you didn't stretch enough or you didn't receive, you know, massage enough. Uh, but, but so, so those, those may help. But at the same time, they don't make a huge big of a difference um, when it comes to. But if you feel good about doing stretching and it helps you and you feel better by doing it, but by all means, you can, uh, you know, you can do it. But don't worry about if you don't like stretching that uh, and you don't want to do it, that you've been a high risk of experiencing back pain in the future. What would you say the most common thing that uh, people do on a day to day basis that they're unaware of that could be causing them harm? Um, yeah, great question. Um, we know, like, again, one of the contributors that we talked before, physical inactivity, that's a huge, again, risk for also experiencing musculoskeletal pain conditions and low back pain, for example, not being physically active enough. So a huge proportion of the population are sedentary. So that could be one factor. So just getting those minimum physical activity guidelines would be, would be probably something that I would prioritize the most. Um, over, you know, it's very hard to measure, but I would still uh, classify these more important factors. If we talked about things like stretching and, and lots of these, these passive tool, you know, therapies not being that important, something that we should prioritize is our physical activity, sleep, stress management, diet, nutrition, and overall lifestyle factors. But it's very hard to pinpoint what would be the most important. But if I would have to choose one, I would say um, physical inactivity. Uh, so physical activity being the most important, if you're not getting enough activity throughout your day and throughout your week, then you are at a higher risk of experiencing also, you know, uh, MSK pain conditions and people do, just don't do that and engage in enough. Have you ever been in a situation where the problem couldn't be resolved? Um, yes, uh, <laughs> quite a few times. I've uh, what I've learned uh, throughout this years of, of studying uh, pain and now being in clinical practice is that things are definitely um, there are a lot, and I'm getting facing a lot more uncertainty and uncertain situations. It was easy when, for example, when I was studying and I was told that uh, low back pain is because of a particular joint problem, something like the often you hear uh, pain attributed to a sacroiliac or an SI joint. People tell, "Hey, your your pelvis is out of position, or you have a leg length dif- difference, or you your you know your facet joints in your back are being stuck, and we just you know need to manipulate those uh, and and get them moving better." And that's resolved the pain. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, we don't have evidence to suggest such things. Um, so that re- coming to a realization that pain is a very complex, uh, like an emergent phenomenon, um, is, is something that obviously brings a whole lot of uncertainty that I cannot promise individuals when they're coming to see me that you're going to get out of pain um, because that's not a realistic um, you know, goal either. We know that pain, even though it can be very unpleasant, it's in, it's a normal human sensation. So, uh, that's normally where I try to, to begin with, with individuals is to tell them that, look, I may not be able to resolve your pain completely. I, I, I can't, surely I can't 
cure your pain. Um, and something that we should be focusing more is your overall physical function. Get you to do the things that you like to be able to, to do, those hobbies, those activities, playing with kids, uh, whatever they might be that you are more confident, you have more self-efficacy, and, and you, you can do those better despite still experiencing some symptoms. Because as, as I mentioned there, and we've been talking about earlier, um, there, something like the recurrence rate of, of back pain, for example, is, is very common. So um, I may have people, individuals and, and, and people coming to see me after that we've started a course, and they still report some pain. Um, but if they, for example, if they are if they understand their pain a lot better and they're more confident and they, they believe in themselves a lot more, they're more, you know, they have higher levels of self-efficacy and they, they think that they can now manage, they have had tools to manage it better. Um, then that's a victory. And that's, that's already something that's, you know, we are trying to aim towards. And those are those, those wins that I'm trying to, um, you know, look, look towards. But if I was to just look at purely pain, uh, that would be very hard for me because, uh, it, it, and and say, same for the individual that that I'm seeing. If if I say them that look, the first thing that we need to do is get you pain free. But first of all, that would be bad because I can't promise that. But if I give you an intervention saying that look, you know, uh, this should, you know, I'm just going to manipulate your back and you're going to be pain free. Uh, what if they experience a flare up? Uh, in, in, in say the next couple of days, a couple of weeks, a couple of months. Now they probably feel that okay. Well, I was told that. The, the, the intervention should cure my pain, but why my pain is back? Uh, maybe they go through a cycle of that repeatedly and they had this, it's unfortunate, but many people with chronic pain, they go through cycles of, un, you know, failed treatments and false beliefs that the intervention was said to quote unquote fix them. But now if that didn't help, now they're thinking probably, okay, well, there's nothing that I can do anymore there's something wrong in me or i'm you know faking it the pain is in my head and things like that and we know again these sort of uh, pain cognitions put you at a high risk of, of a persistent pain as well so uh, surely if i would look at just point of view of getting someone pain-free i would consider that i have done always a great job but as i mentioned there we shouldn't be looking at that as the as the as the goal that we are placing our success over the long run it's more about getting you to do what you can do and enjoy doing and not having the pain interfere with those activities so you mentioned beforehand that uh, you've had type 1 diabetes for 20 years uh, how do you manage it and what's been the most difficult part in managing it yes uh as, as you said there, 20 years have been living it every day is, is a bit different. So that's the unfortunate thing with living with type 1 diabetes is that uh, you can do two days, uh, repeat everything that you do, same way, eat the same type of food, you know, do the same form of activity, and you're going to get two different results <laughs> because it's just a, it's a challenge. Uh, and uh, it's, it's something that obviously um, it's a big big task to me daily. Uh, it's, it's like a heavy backpack that I need to carry. And a lot of the decisions that I based on my day, uh, have to go, uh, and, and revolve around my diabetes. So, uh, what I eat, what do I do? Um, you know, what sort of decisions I make throughout the day, my exercise, physical activity, all of this has to be before I decide to do anything, I have to look at it in the context of my diabetes. How is that going to affect my blood glucose management, for example? Uh, and so I've, I've heard a, you know, research study saying that diabetics, uh, make up to 200 decisions more on a daily basis compared to non diabetics. And I can definitely relate to that. It's always 
in my mind when I'm considering anything that I would be doing in the next, say, two hours is that where my blood sugar is, where do, do they have to be? Um, am I going to have a meal? If I am, how is that going to affect my blood glucose? How much, you know, medication or insulin do I have to take? And if I'm going, you know, the context can be very different if I'm going to say uh, do an exercise or some form of physical activity compared to if I'm just, you know, sitting at my sofa, not doing anything. So there's a whole bunch of decisions that I need to make on a daily basis. But, and many people have asked me, so like, that sounds very difficult. How can you do that? I was like, what did I say? Well, I don't have a choice. <laughs> so, but I'm glad that diabetes is never really, it's, it's never stopped me from doing something that I want to do. It's always something that I have to consider always, but it's not making me limit the things that I would like to do. Um, and, uh, so it's not stopping me to do it. It's, it's, it's obviously maybe uh, an obstacle and it can be, can slow me down, but, uh, it's, it's, uh, I can still do whatever I, I, I like to do. Yeah, that's good. So, um, how have you adapted in the, the current medical crisis, uh, with COVID-19? Uh, yes. So, um, obviously things, uh, in, in Finland, Finland, the government has not really put out a, a, uh, you know, a message out there that you, you would have to close down, um, your practices. So, uh, I, I believe there's still chiropractors, there's still physios and, you know, massage therapists, et cetera, that are still seeing, um, patients, but I closed my, um, offices both in the private uh, clinic as well as in the gym two weeks ago uh, because again I think that that was the best decision that I could do in this given situation as well as always considering myself being in a high risk group as well so um, that being said I am now doing everything uh, remotely from my uh, you know from my home um, with using laptops so I've transitioned into a what's called a telehealth or telemedicine, however you would like to, you know, call that. Um, but basically, doing online consultations with uh, clients who would be in a need of, of seeking care. Uh, so that could be. I've I've noticed some resistance to that, uh, especially amongst people who are mainly doing manual therapy. You know, hands-on work is well. Now, if, if our hands are removed, we can't use our hands. What can you do as a, for example, a chiropractor? But I think this is also a really good opportunity, um, to, uh, you know, improve our practice and, and evolve as a profession as well. Uh, because those hands and the, and the hands on manual therapy is just only one very small aspect of our, of our overall, um, you know, treatment that we can offer. The more important skills there. Are the ability to to triage individuals to appropriate care. You know, listen to their story, hear what they have to say, their history, and based on that, you can get. I would I would say probably eighty percent of the diagnosis already based on the history, and then obviously throughout video consultations, you can see how they move, you can evaluate their physical function, and that will pretty much the physical you know the tests that you would normally do. They're just to try to confirm what you've heard in the history taking. So. That's based on those skills, uh, and that's sort of the basis of our university training as a as a chiropractor is to be able to medically triage individuals. So those are, that's the mo most the number one thing we can still do 
So we're still healthcare professionals providing care, even though we're doing it uh, online. And then um, what you can also then, then after, if you've, you know, uh, triaged the individual, you've reassured that they don't have any serious underlying condition. They don't need any, you know, medical intervention. They don't need any imaging. Uh, you can give advice and uh, on self-care management options. You can educate on the condition, how long it's probably going to take, what's the prognosis, what do we understand about pain, what does the individual should know about pain, uh, are they safe to move, what are the sort of things that they can do uh, themselves, for example, at home. You could give them uh, home exercise programs, etc. So you are still doing all the most valuable things that the clinical practice guidelines are recommending to do. Uh, so in reality, for me, nothing changes in telehealth. Obviously, you can't use your hands, but those would be adjunct to those, uh, um, you know, treatments that I just listed in there. So they're not necessary interventions, uh, you know, the manual therapy. You don't need to use those tools. The more important ones are uh, actually what you, you can do as a, uh, uh, as I mentioned there, triage, reassure, educate, advise, give self-management tips and tools. Uh, so the core aspect of care are still there. But um, yeah, that's the sort of approach that uh, I'm doing and I'm hoping to see more individuals doing because if you're still working and seeing individuals, you are putting yourself at risk and you're also putting the, the, the patients or the clients as, as uh, to risk as well. So you've mentioned um, how important uh, physical activity is. Uh, do you have any advice for young adults, middle-aged and elderly, things they could be doing to improve their health and prevent them as much as they can from getting back problems? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I mentioned the physical activity uh, guidelines, the recommendations. So you should at least meet or hopefully exceed those uh, recommendations. So getting uh, the 150 to 300 minutes of moderate intensity aerobic activity or hopefully more. And then at least uh, twice a week, but hopefully more of resistance training, training major muscle groups. Uh, so that would be at this current situation, for example, that would be looking something like uh, uh, every day doing half an hour of more of a moderate intensity aerobic training or 20 minutes every other day of more higher intensity um, aerobic training. And then uh, training doing, you know, twice a week of some form of resistance training, whether that was using your own body weight or some form of equipment, you know, you can have at home, you, you may have resistance bands, you may have kettlebells, um, you, you know, dumbbells. If you're very luxury, I've seen people, you know, build their home gyms, <laughs> for example, and you have a setup for a barbell to train, that would be awesome. But those are the general guidelines that I would like everyone to, to meet. Um, and then just selecting the activity that you like to do. Um, we know that, for example, if we're talking about the pain uh, point of view, there's not one exercise modality that is better than the other. If you like to do Pilates, go for it. If you like to do yoga, nice one. If you like to do, you know, core stabilization exercises, those can be also good as well. But don't, you know, believe that your back pain is due to a weak core and you need to just keep on training it more and more. Because unfortunately, we see a lot of people in chronic pain that they are working to tense their core all the time. They're avoiding certain movements and they're bracing to protect uh, because of the pain. So don't think that if you don't do this core stability exercises that uh, you would be at a high risk of uh, experiencing pain in the future. But that if you like to do them, surely you can work on your, on your you know, abs. Uh, but again, if you just only like to do walking, that, that's, that's great too. Uh, just put more effort into those things that you you like to do. But I would ha want everyone 
to meet or exceed the physical activity guidelines. So irrespective of your, you know, your age, or if you have an underlying medical condition, obviously you would seek out to consult your, your, your medical doctor first, but still, uh, I, I think everyone should be meeting those, those guideline recommendations. And if you like one form of activity over another or one form of hobby or exercise over the other, another, choose that one because we also know from a, adherence point of view if you don't like to do some form of physical activity or exercise you are more likely to not stick to it and we know an adherence is a really big problem for example when you look at rehabilitation of of these msk conditions for example and i don't blame individuals if i would have to do just you know some planks and sit-ups all day long for how long time i would get bored as well so choose something that you enjoy doing uh, and you're more likely to also adhere to that and have fun at the same time. So you should enjoy that. So how, how can um, people connect with you online? We, like, what sort of your social handles, um, a website, etc.? cetera? Uh, so yes, um, I'm most active on Instagram. So you can find me there at my name. So Pertu, then underscore B2R. So B number two and R that's, uh, from the company name called back to roots. So that's where I'm most active at, at back to roots. We also have a, uh, community website at back to roots community. So, uh, back to roots dot community. That's where you can, you know, find what, what we also do. So those are probably the more, uh, you know, uh, sites that are most active also on Facebook, just on my, you know, uh, my own name, Bertu and my surname, Ripinen. uh, at now we're, posting content uh, with the regards I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, these live workout videos. So I'm trying to look, put them um, you know, public so everyone can can see them. But uh, definitely Instagram mostly active and that's where I'm trying to put also, you know, educational content related to to, to, to back pain, uh, physical activity, exercise, lifestyle, etc. Yeah, I'll make sure all the social handles are in the show notes. Uh, Perto, uh Thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Uh, I appreciate your time and I hope to catch up with you soon in the future. Yeah, awesome. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, so it's, it's great to talk to you. I always enjoy talking about these, these topics and uh, I'm happy to share uh, the, the message forward. So thanks, thanks a lot for inviting me. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe and visit our website, www.theludlowstreet.com to stay up to date with our latest news and updates. 